ahead and reach for a Bible or a Bible app on your mobile device. Rodney Schaefer, you can use the Bible tab if you are following online. Uh, this week we are in Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 6. We are continuing in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And you may have noticed a shift that in the first part of the sermon, uh, Jesus is focusing on the false narratives that guide our thoughts. Uh, the things that kind of propel our action out into the world. And then right around chapter 7, there is a shift to looking at the false actions that actually kind of create the mental maps for how we navigate the world. He starts with this pattern of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And then he moves to a series of, do not. And this morning we come to one of the most misunderstood passages but also one of the most poignant, I think particularly in these divisive, polarizing times that we've come to, where Jesus says, do not judge. I was wearing, I was planning on wearing a Dodger uh, shirt today, but I got all kinds of comments, nice comments from people out in the community last week, and I was just like, you know, do not judge. I don't, don't want to invite that. I want to actually be helpful for you, so I decided not to wear it. It is an easy thing to grasp in concept, do not judge. And yet it's hard to let that thing get a hold of you. And yet, it has the power, if citizens of the kingdom kind of get it into their bones, to open floodgates of hope into this world. Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now, Almighty God, come upon us in power. And by the power of your Spirit, Allow us to hear these words of Jesus, our Lord, not as good advice to us, but as good news of the kingdom breaking into our world. We ask that uh, we may pray this as constantly as we breathe. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, a number of years ago, Jill and I were visiting a friend of uh, mine who lives in Berlin. Uh, she was a foreign exchange student who lived with us when I was 11 years old. She was 16. We just kind of hit it off. We have been really close ever since. And over the years, as we would talk with one another, uh, the conversation would, would change, and we would talk about you know, life and I was going through a season of you know having faith, not having faith. We talk about doubts and uh, Finally, you know, when I told her that I was going to seminary to study for the ministry, you know, she kind of had this detached sort of big sister look of kind of like, oh, right, well, we'll see how this goes. Uh, sure, 
you're going to be in the ministry. And I fast forward to this time when we're visiting her out in Berlin and over conversation at dinner one day, I guess all of the curiosity she had about this decision of mine just kind of reached the boiling point. And she said to me, why on earth do you want to spend your life in the church? And then she rattled off this litany of the problems that she had with the church, the institutional self-absorption, the divisions, the politics, but most of all, the judgment. And I was thinking at that point, I'd been a pastor for a couple of years. I was like, oh, you don't know the half of it. <laughs> the question stuck with me. Why do you want to be in the church? And the answer is the same then as it is now, because it's the same reason that I go to the hospital when I'm sick. It's the place I know where I'm going to find healing. And yes, when I go there, I know I'm going to find some people who are sick as well. Jesus was a remarkably non-judgmental presence in the world. In fact, this flows out of the very heart of his mission. We heard this in the songs that we sang. John tells us that he did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. It got into the, into the heart of his earliest disciples. Paul wrote that for those in Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation. Just to make sure we're tracking, how much condemnation was that? No condemnation. And yet, I mean, I would think that as those of us who are part of this community that Jesus founded and empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we ought to be known as the least judgmental people on the planet. But I don't need to tell you that that's not exactly the popular conception of the church, right? Digging into uh, some studies from the Pew Research Center, which show a steady decline of religious affiliation uh, along generational lines here in America, Dave Kinnaman found that the primary characteristic that non-Christians associate with the church is that of being judgmental. This in the face of a Jesus who said, do not judge. And I've heard a lot of pastors and thinkers you know, counter this with, you know, the problem is not really that we are too judgmental. It's that we believe in moral truth and people take that as some sort of implicit judgment. And maybe, I mean, maybe that is at least part of it. But here's the thing. Jesus had a reputation among the non-religious outsiders as one who welcomed them with grace and truth. At the same time, he had a reputation with the religious insiders as someone who was a bit lax, to put it the least. They said of him, oh, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. Is that how people think of us when they, when they think of us? Or do they think, no, they just hang out with each other? And so if we're going to live this life that is free of judgment, that is going to mean letting go of this deeply rooted practice of blaming and condemning others and ourselves. This this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives, it is a window into what the life of the kingdom looks like. And it's a life of abandoning the practice of using judgment as a way to try to shape the behavior of others or the behavior of the world around us. 
And so to be clear about what Jesus has in mind this morning, uh, I first maybe need to say a few things about what he does not have in mind. Because there is a lot of confusion about that. And so I want to just kind of clear that up, that Jesus is not talking about God's judgment in this passage, saying that, you know, if you judge others, then God is waiting to zap you, right? That's, that's not what he's getting at. He's talking about the ways that we pass judgment and condemn one another, the way that we kind of create the conditions of judgment in the world. And secondly, and this is important, he is not talking about giving up the practice of moral discernment. This passage is one of the most uh, widely quoted parts of Scripture, uh, often used to kind of promote the idea that all choices are valid, all values are equally noble. Uh, Voltaire once said you know, that uh, understanding everything means pardoning everything. The, the popularity of Jesus saying, I think, uh, comes in part from this kind of misunderstanding of what he is getting at. Uh, the word judge which is krino in Greek. It has two meanings, just like in English. It can mean to distinguish between things, or it can mean to pass judgment. And in distinguishing between things, which we do all the time, I mean, we've, we've got an election coming up, right? You all know that, I hope, okay? You might have heard a thing or two about it on the news lately. We have this responsibility to thoughtfully, prayerfully, humbly discern to, to make decisions about things like economics and immigration, about culture and value and character. We do this always imperfectly through the lens of what represents most clearly, as we understand it, the kingdom of God. That's the work of discernment. And, and it's important because I mean, if Jesus was talking about avoiding discernment, then that makes the Sermon on the Mount a really confusing message, right? In just a little while, in chapter 7, he is going to talk about avoiding false teachers, knowing true teachers from false ones. He's going to talk about knowing uh, good fruit from bad fruit. He's going to talk about staying on the, the, the straight and narrow path and choosing that one over the broad one that leads to destruction, no, he is expressly calling his disciples to a posture of wise discernment, to know the difference between right and wrong, to choose what is good and beautiful and true. It's this second sense of Pernod that he's getting at here, which means to take on the posture of condemnation, to set oneself up as the judge. And it's the kind of judgment that Jesus forbids, the kind that moves from this is how I have discerned to if you discern differently, if you act differently, if you vote differently, then you are evil, stupid, unworthy of my time, and I can't stand to be in your presence. Maybe a little bit too on the nose as we're getting closer. If we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, we're going to have to learn how to decenter this sort of visceral judging response that we have. We're going to need to learn to see people. 
James Bryan Smith describes the kind of judgment that Jesus is talking about as making a negative evaluation of someone without standing in solidarity with them. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus warns against. He, he does not give us the permission to see others as irretrievably guilty because that's not how he came to be with us. The, the, the judgment that Jesus is talking about means having this spirit of contempt and condemnation. It means feeding the desire I have to want to be superior. It means forsaking humility so I don't have to deal with your humanity, so I can get that kind of dopamine hit in my brain that comes from when I judge someone. And the thing is, I mean, these are the cultural waters in which we swim, right? We are trained to be judgmental. But love and scorn simply cannot occupy the same space. So if we're going to follow Jesus in becoming a non-judgmental presence in the world, there are a few shifts that we're going to need to make. And the first is that we are going to be a people who tip the scales toward mercy over contempt. In his book, The News, uh, the philosopher Alain de Paton makes a distinction between uh, classical theater and modern tabloid journalism. Apples and oranges comparison, you might be thinking. Hear the idea out, dude's really smart, okay? In classical theater, think like King Lear, Madame Bovary, Oedipus Rex, something like that. The audience is sort of brought into this experience where we are meant to identify with the protagonist who is suffering some sort of pain or humiliation and goes kind of on this journey of self-discovery through their pain before eventually succumbing to some sort of tragic, you know, twist in the plot. It's, it's a moral universe where we are meant to watch as an empathetic place sharer with the protagonist of the story. We're meant to watch it and think, that could be me. Modern journalism, on the other hand, when we hear a report of a moral failure, it is almost the exact opposite of that. We are encouraged to be arrogant, to uh, have pride swell up, and to heap scorn on those who have been caught in their sin or their stupidity. That, that sex scandal, that corruption charge, that tax evasion, that religious affiliation, we would never be like that. And then you add to that the 140-character judgment factory that is Twitter, and you have a recipe for contempt. And, and we do this because it makes us feel good, because we actually have a positive reaction in our brain when we pass judgment on another person. But it is the exact opposite of this kind of ennobling tendency of great literature. And in contrast to all this, Jesus says, the measure that you use is going to be the measure that is used against you. He uses this image of uh, scales in a marketplace that was used to measure a fair amount of goods. And, and Jesus is just kind of observing this general fact of human nature, something that uh, the biblical scholar Dale Bruner calls the law of critical gravity. We create the kind of culture, the kind of environment 
in which we live. If you grew up in a, in, a, in a home as a child that is cold and judgmental and harsh, then you will, without outside intervention and the work of the Holy Spirit, become an adult who has a home that is cold and judgmental and harsh. If you lead with anger in your reaction toward people, you will kind of establish anger as the, the groundwork of reality. But if you lead with love, you're going to create the conditions where it is easier for people to express themselves and to give love. Jesus says that the measure you use, that will be the measure that is used against you. And if you tip the scales toward contempt when you are dealing with others, you can expect to be treated that way. If you are scarce with mercy and you use just a teaspoon of mercy when you are with others, you can expect scarcity in return. Or you can use a bucket of mercy when you are dealing with others. The question is, how do you want people to treat you? Do you want to be met with mercy or with contempt? Do you want it to be measured out by the teaspoon or by the ocean? I don't know about you, but when you judge me, and you will, because I will do stupid things, I promise you, I want you to use mercy. I want you to use it by the bucket. I need you to remember that there is a whole story involving my family of origin, my blind spots, the pain that I barely am even aware of myself. I'm going to need you to remember that I'm a Californian, and there's all kinds of baggage that comes with that, that I'm an INTJ, that I don't know what my Enneagram type is. I'm going to need you to remember that, like, I missed the game-winning shot uh, against our high school rival when I was a senior. Yeah, all of that stuff. I'm going to need you to remember that there's a story that goes along with me. I'm going to need you to give me a bucket full of mercy. And that means that I'm going to have to start by giving out a bucket full of mercy first. When I see others, I need to learn to see their scars, to see their uphill battles, to see their broken hearts, their broken dreams. And yeah, I mean, it is a lot easier to carry a teaspoon, right? But I find that most of us, we need a bucket. And when you do that, when you give mercy in a place where it's not expected, that is when lives begin to change. But in order to do that, and this moves to the second point, we are going to need to learn with self-awareness instead of self-righteousness. And to drive this point home, Jesus uses a bit of humor. He talks about the ridiculousness of a person with a giant board in their eye pointing out and obsessing over the small, tiny speck in someone else's. It is meant to be funny. And so I found a kind of modern twist on this. And so I want to direct your attention to the screens just so you can have a laugh. There's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless. And 
I don't know if it's going to stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever going to stop. Yeah. You do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there... Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, out. you're not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just... Sometimes it's like there's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. That sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Come on! No. If you would just don't try to see things my way. I mean, every relationship has had that conversation, right? Your problem is you don't listen. It's hard to listen when there's a nail in your head. It's not about the nail. A little self-awareness goes a long way, right? I mean, we all have our own faults, our own hang-ups, and we, we tend to think that they are relatively hidden while at the same time imagining that other people's faults are totally outsized. And when we obsess and we cross over, uh, you know, into other people's, you know, perceived shortcomings, we, we end up looking pretty ridiculous, right? Psalmist says, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. These are the planks that we don't notice. And the real problem is that when we assume this posture of judgment, it is actually impossible to see clearly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer notes that judging others makes us blind, but love gives us sight. When I judge, I am blind to my own evil and to the grace granted the other person, but in the love of Christ, disciples know about every imaginable kind of guilt and sin because they know the suffering of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus wants us to see, that when we remove the planks from our own eyes, that's the only time that we are in a position to even see reality clearly. That's the only spot we can be in where we can actually even offer any kind of realistic help. It's not about dealing with our own issues so that we then have the green light to pass judgment on others. No, it is about seeing clearly so that we can help others see clearly. We go to the hospital to receive healing, but then Jesus says once we are healed, you are in the process now, in the business now of providing healing for others. And we do this lastly so that we can actually offer the kind of help that brings about restoration. My grandmother was an amazing woman in so many respects. I mean, she was the, the matriarch of our family. She raised three children uh, on her own in the 1940s, 
in the town in which she happened to just kind of stay and find a job because that's where her car broke down. Her life revolved around uh, her church, her family, to a lesser extent, Fresno State football. But she was an absolutely beloved woman. She's a pillar of the community. Uh, I had the privilege of officiating her funeral when she was 100 years old. And over 200 people were there, which says something about you know, somebody who has got that many years on them. And yet for all of that, uh, most of my cousins and even her, her daughter, my, my aunts, were conspicuously missing from the funeral. Nana had this, this very... Uh, subtle habit of engaging in the art of what Dallas Willard calls condemnation engineering. And that is, you know, she would try to use disapproval to shape the behavior of her family. Loved her family, no doubt, uh, but her fear for her family actually sometimes made her steer every single conversation toward whether or not we were saved. And I told her that I was going to seminary. I mean, she was overjoyed. When I told her I was going to Princeton, she prayed for my soul. I remember being at dinner with Nana, with one of my cousins, and this particular cousin was studying for her PhD. She was really excited about the, the research that she was doing. She's working in public health. And Nana, just, she did not want to hear anything about that. All she wanted to talk about was whether or not this cousin had been to church. She felt like she needed to be sorted out. And it was clear to my cousin that the only way that she was going to get approval was if she did the things that Nana wanted her to do, to believe the things that Nana wanted her to believe. And I'll, I'll never forget my cousin getting up from the restaurant at the table with tears in her eyes and just walking away. When Jesus talks about giving pearls to swine and giving holy things to dogs, he is not saying that some people are not worth your time. How do I know? Well, read the Gospels. I mean, did Jesus spend a lot of time casting judgment on the value and dignity of people? No, he's simply saying that dogs and pigs, they have no idea what to do with sacred things. Giving them away is not going to help. And you and they are only going to end up being frustrated if you keep trying to shove them on them. Remember, judgment is making a negative evaluation of someone without standing in solidarity with them first. Correction, by contrast, is about coming alongside and helping people back on the path. Sometimes those people are not in a place where they can actually receive the help that you want to give. And sometimes the way that we want to give help comes across as condemnation instead of restoration. And so, you lead with mercy. You make sure that there is room for the next conversation. And I know, I mean, there are a, a million what-ifs about addiction or, or violence. I know that is where real discernment is needed. But for this week, 
Set aside the impulse to point the finger, to shift the blame, to judge. And start where you live. How are you doing at living without condemnation in your own home, with your family, with your coworkers, with your friends? I mean, I got to tell you, you guys have been sitting on a sermon on judgment for, you know, like 25 minutes now. I've been sitting with this for like a whole week. Um, and the way that it has been kind of hitting me is the way that I parent, the way that I, the way that I kind of use subtle signals of disapproval to try to correct my children's behavior. And yes, children need correction for sure. But they need to know love first. I thought about Nana because one of the hardest places to avoid judgment is with the people that you hold closest. I was reminded by something that C.S. Lewis wrote in The Four Loves. He said, we hear a great deal about the rudeness of the rising generation. I'm an oldster myself, and I might be expected to take the oldster's side. But in fact, I have been far more impressed by the bad manners of parents to children than by those of children to parents. Who has not been the embarrassed guest at family meals where the father or mother treated their grown-up offspring with an incivility which, if offered to any other young people, would simply have terminated the acquaintance? Dogmatic assertions on matters which the children understand and their elders don't, ruthless interruptions, flat contradictions, ridicule of things that young take seriously sometimes of the religion, insulting references to their friends, all provide an easy answer to the question, why are they always out? Why do they like every house better than their home? He asks, who does not prefer civility to barbarism? How do I communicate rejection, judgment, contempt, condemnation to my own family, to the people that I interact with? How do I express the subtle disapprovals of their behavior that don't actually lead to restoration? This week, as you offer love rather than condemnation to those close to you and to those who those who you don't even understand where they're coming from, to your parents, to your children, to your boss, to your neighbors, to your spouse, to your friends, to the people you serve, to the people who serve you. My prayer is that you experience a new level of grace and that as you do this, you will want to do it even more and you will find more and more encouragement. And if you do, you will be a blessing. As we come now to the table, we come in the welcome reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that in this meal, the sinless one, the one who could offer judgment is the one instead who is judged in our place so that we may be healed and so that we may bring others to a place of healing in him. And so as we come to the table, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Now lift up your hearts.
Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered his disciples together in an upper room. And after he'd given thanks, he took bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after they'd eaten, he took the cup and he poured it out, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take all of you and drink of it. And so, friends, it is that whenever we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his dying until he comes again in great power and in great glory. Friends, as we come to the table, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come. All has been made ready. Thank you.